Hello, and welcome to Assassinations Podcast. This is the last episode of this season of the show. Since our first case back in March, where we looked at the killing of Senator Robert Kennedy, we have dwelled in the realm of conspiracies. Cases where the death or disappearance of someone is either unexplained, or where the official narrative has come under significant public scrutiny. I found it to be a most interesting theme to explore. Listen out at the end of the show for information about a Patreon video bonus, in which I'll be wrapping up the season. This week, we're going to look at a case from the US state of Arizona, where two seemingly unconnected killings in the 1970s pointed to the existence of a network of organised criminals and politicians. So, let us travel to the Grand Canyon State, as we first join with a crusading journalist as he uncovers a world of shady business practices and political intrigues, before he has a date with a man described as the Friendly Neighbourhood Assassin. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings, and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. Investigative reporter Don Bowles was hot on the trail of mafia money laundering activities when... On the morning of June 13th, 1976, he was seriously wounded when a bomb exploded under his car. Bowles had been lured to a hotel in downtown Phoenix, Arizona, by an informant, who claimed to have a tip about a money laundering operation involving prominent state politicians. The informant was a no-show, and Bowles exited the hotel lobby and went out to his car. A few seconds after he started the engine, a massive explosion was detonated. A stick of dynamite placed underneath the car was set off by a remote control device. Clearly, the journalist had been set up and was being watched. He was admitted to hospital with horrific injuries, including catastrophic damage to the lower part of his torso. Over the course of ten days in intensive care, both legs and one arm had to be amputated. He died from his injuries on June 24th. A reporter for the Arizona Republic newspaper 
he had been investigating political corruption related to the state's legal and regulated dog racing tracks. There were signs that organised crime might be using these gambling activities to launder dirty money from all across the United States, and Bowles had received a tip-off that a local company involved in dog racing in Phoenix kept a separate set of books to hide criminal activities. As a consequence of his investigative work, Bowles had received death threats. In the weeks before his assassination, Bowles had confided to a friend that his investigation into the suspicious goings-on at the dog tracks had led him to an even bigger story that involved stolen gold, corporate bribery, and a connection between the Mafia and a top political operative in the state. It was clear who Bowles had arranged to meet that fateful day. He had left a note on his desk in the newsroom which read, John Adamson, Lobby at 11.15, Clarendon Hotel. While in hospital, the journalist, though in terrible pain and heavily sedated, managed to say a few words. One of the names he mentioned was Adamson. Another was Emprise. Emprise was the name of a New York-based business that operated dog and horse racing tracks across the United States. In the 1970s, Emprise jointly owned all six Arizona dog tracks. In what might on the surface seem to be an incongruous mix of business activities, Emprise was also involved in buying and selling precious metals. Phoenix police soon identified John Harvey Adamson, a racing dog owner, as the prime suspect in the case. A witness came forward to state that he had been with Adamson on the morning of June 13th, and that Adamson had flown out of a small airport outside Phoenix that afternoon, heading to Lake Havasu, which is located 150 miles northwest on the border with California. This witness was Neil Roberts, a former assistant Arizona attorney general who had moved into private practice. He claimed that Adamson was known as the friendly neighborhood assassin, and he suggested that his murderous services might have been purchased on previous occasions by high-ranking figures from both the Democrat and Republican parties in the state. Phoenix police officers searched Adamson's apartment, discovering electronic equipment that could be used to make a bomb. More witnesses came forward, providing evidence that Adamson had been following Mr. Bowles in the weeks before the attack. An attendant at the parking garage of the Arizona Republic newspaper identified Adamson from a photograph. He told police that Adamson had visited the car park a week before the bombing to ask which car belonged to Bowles. James Adamson was arrested and put on trial in September of 1976. 
In exchange for cooperation with the authorities, he was only charged with second-degree murder for his involvement in the crime. During the trial, he accused a Phoenix businessman named Max Dunlap of ordering the hit, and a local plumber named James Robeson of triggering the bomb. Dunlap was a wealthy contractor with extensive holdings in the Lake Havasu area. He was a close business associate and family friend of Kemper Marley, a rancher who was regarded as a power broker in Democratic Party politics in Arizona. Marley had been the subject of a number of investigative pieces by Don Bowles. An article written in March of 76 pointed to various legal difficulties the rancher faced. Largely based on this, Marley had been forced to resign from the Arizona Racing Commission, the body tasked with regulating the state's dog racing tracks. It had been, frankly, completely corrupt for Marley to have been appointed by Arizona's Democrat governor, Raul Castro, to the commission in the first place. Marley owned a business that supplied liquor to all the dog racing tracks in the state, which was a huge conflict of interest. Evidence presented at the trial indicated that at the time of the bombing, Dunlap was engaged in an opaque deal to purchase around a quarter of a million dollars of silver, which was described by one witness as hot, i.e. stolen or of dubious legality. Though it was never proved, this transaction was allegedly financed by Kemper Marley. It looked like Don Bowles had really been onto something. Here, in the person of Mr. Marley and his associate, Max Dunlap, there was a connection between dog racing and precious metals trading, the very same strange combination of business interests of the New York company Emprise. Dunlap and Robeson were convicted of first-degree murder, but their convictions were overturned on appeal in 1978. During the appeal, prosecutors tried to get Adamson to testify again. He now refused to do so probably fearing for his life. In response, Adamson was then charged and convicted of first-degree murder in 1980 and sentenced to death. But this verdict was soon overturned by the Arizona Supreme Court, though Adamson's original conviction for second-degree murder was upheld. In 1989, James Robeson pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of conspiracy. The following year, Max Dunlap was recharged when Adamson at last agreed to testify. Based on this, Dunlap was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Don Bowles. While all this legal wrangling was going on, Newspaper reporters from across the United States collaborated to continue the work that Bowles had tragically been unable to fulfil. These journalists formed a group called the Arizona Project, 
which exposed massive corruption in the state, with a political, business and regulatory environment that made the old Wild West look positively tame by comparison. In effect, by the end of the 1970s, Arizona had become the Mafia's preferred laundromat, which inevitably required the complicity of the political movers and shakers in the state. The gambling operations being investigated by Bowles turned out to be just the tip of the iceberg. Journalists uncovered a scheme through which the mob was cleaning its filthy lucre through a highly unusual state law that allowed anyone to purchase land through a blind trust. This wheeze made it possible for the source of the money to remain completely anonymous which was basically an open invitation for criminals to turn illegal earnings into bona fide real estate. The most lucrative technique for money laundering involved taking advantage of Arizona's lax regulatory environment to wash dirty money through a string of shell companies before using it to purchase silver and gold bullion and platinum. Or so it seemed. In fact, the money for these supposed transactions was held in various escrow accounts, but no metals were ever purchased. Instead, the escrow accounts were used to withdraw seemingly clean cash. In order to get away with this little enterprise, the mob needed crooked escrow companies. And that leads us to a man named Chuck Morgan. The way I came across Mr. Morgan was remarkably serendipitous. Listeners of this podcast in the United States will probably be familiar with a TV show called Unsolved Mysteries. It was broadcast in the late 1980s and early 90s, and hosted by actor and television personality Robert Stack. The premise of Unsolved Mysteries was to explore cases of murders, robberies, missing persons, conspiracy theories, and unexplained paranormal phenomena through a combination of interviews and reenactments. It was a very popular show in its day, sort of a combination between an investigative journalism program and the X-Files. I'm not an aficionado of Unsolved Mysteries, but it just so happened that one afternoon, around a month ago, I caught a few reruns of the show on cable TV. This was at the time I was researching the case of Don Bowles. To be honest, I kind of had the TV on in the background as Robert Stack intoned gravely about an unsolved robbery, a couple of missing person stories, an alleged haunting, and some other true crime stuff. But one of the vignettes really did catch my attention. It was a case set in Arizona in the 1970s, and it focused on Chuck Morgan and the Mafia. Naturally, my ears picked up. 
The episode noted that in 1977, Mr Morgan, aged 39, was a successful businessman living in the city of Tucson. One of the businesses Morgan owned was an escrow company. And, the inimitable Mr Stack told me, because of this and his potential role in money laundering, Morgan got himself into a whole world of trouble. On March 22nd of that year, Morgan left his home to drive his two daughters to school. After dropping them off, he vanished. He didn't return to his home until three days later, and when he did, he appeared distressed and disoriented. He had a handcuff around one ankle, and his hands bound with a plastic zip tie. According to his wife, Ruth, who gave testimony to the show, Mr Morgan could not speak. She got a pen and paper and asked him to write down what had happened. Morgan wrote that he had been kidnapped and tortured and that a hallucinogenic drug had been painted onto his skin. He claimed that this drug would drive him insane or kill him if he ingested it. He asked Ruth to move his car from the driveway into the garage because he did not want his kidnappers to know that he had returned home. However, he would not say who these kidnappers might be. He also told his wife not to call the police, because any involvement by the authorities would endanger the lives of the entire family. Ruth described how she nursed her husband back to health. Perhaps as a result of the drug he had seemingly been given, his throat had closed up to the point that he couldn't speak or ingest solid food. So Ruth had to feed him with broth using an eyedropper. Eventually, as his voice returned, he began to hint that he had a secret identity. He claimed that he had worked as an agent for the federal government as part of an investigation into organised crime in the state. Morgan also said he had knowledge of money laundering operations taking place in Tucson, though he claimed he was not involved. After this, Morgan, quite understandably, became obsessed with the thought that he might be kidnapped again, or worse. He purchased a bulletproof vest, which he would wear whenever he left his house. He was also fearful that his family might be targeted. He informed his daughter's school that only he or his wife would pick up the kids each afternoon. Nobody else should be allowed to pick them up. Two months after his initial disappearance, Chuck Morgan vanished once more. According to the Unsolved Mysteries report, Morgan had told his father that should anything happen to him, there was a letter he had written with the names of the men who would be responsible. However, that letter was never found. Two days after his second disappearance, his body was discovered in the desert. There was a single bullet wound to the back of the head. Morgan's own .35 Magnum pistol was lying beside him. 
bullet and gun matched. His car was parked nearby. There were signs that someone else had been with him in the last moments of his life. As well as the entry wound being in the back of the head, making suicide extremely unlikely, a pair of sunglasses was found in his car. Ruth Morgan confirmed that the glasses had not belonged to her husband. Strangely, he had a $2 bill tucked inside his underwear. Written on the bill were seven Spanish names. Also, there was a reference from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. The quote from this passage is, Men are afraid of a high place and the terrors of the road. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. On the other side of the $2 bill, someone had drawn a rough map showing several roads between Tucson and two towns near the Mexican border, places that were well known for smuggling. Two days after Morgan's body was discovered, an anonymous woman placed a telephone call to the local sheriff's department. The mystery woman told a deputy that Morgan had met her at a local motel shortly before he died. She claimed that her nickname was Green Eyes and that Morgan had shown her a briefcase containing several thousand dollars in cash. He allegedly said that the money would buy him out of a mafia contract that had been put on his life. Extraordinarily, Despite everything that I've just recounted, authorities ruled that Morgan had committed suicide. Unsurprisingly, his family disagreed with this incredible official finding. Three weeks after his death, two men claiming to be FBI agents arrived at the Morgan home. They told Ruth that they had to search the house. After rummaging around for a while, they left not stating if they had found or taken anything. Ruth became suspicious that they might not have been federal agents. Another investigative journalist started to look into the case. He too came to believe that Chuck Morgan had not committed suicide. The journalist's name was Don Devereaux. He thought it was likely that Morgan had been murdered, probably as a result of his involvement in, or knowledge of, mafia activities in the state. He also suspected that state and or federal law enforcement might have been involved in, or at least have had some knowledge of, Morgan's activities. Devereaux contacted the FBI to ask if they'd ever had any contact with Morgan, if they were aware of his death, and if they had searched his home. He received a reply that the agency had never even heard of Chuck Morgan. So, what might really have happened? After his first alleged kidnapping, 
Morgan suggested to his wife that he was working against organised crime. But could it be that he was actually working for the mob, but had run afoul of them in some way? There certainly was a significant mafia presence in the state. A New York City mob boss named Joseph Bonanno had relocated to Arizona in the early 1970s, where he and an estimated 500 mafiosi were engaged in legal and illegal gambling, cross-border smuggling, and running protection rackets that targeted local businesses. During his investigation, journalist Don Devereaux found evidence that Bonanno had several local politicians and members of law enforcement in his pocket. The mob boss apparently maintained a sizable slush fund of cash, which he could covertly inject into Arizona political campaigns to support candidates whom he felt would best protect his interests. Devereaux interviewed a friend of rancher and Democrat political bigwig Kemper Marley, who said that Marley and Bonanno were associates, though the two men had fallen out for a while in the mid-1970s because Marley had refused to pay protection money to Bonanno. After the episode of Unsolved Mysteries aired in February of 1990, Devereaux renewed his interest in the case. His investigations led him to conclude that, starting in 1973, Morgan had helped to launder millions of dollars of mafia money through phony bullion and platinum transactions. Devereaux uncovered duplicate records of these transactions, which included signs that large amounts of the dirty money being laundered actually originated in Southeast Asia. He speculated that Morgan might have been murdered precisely because he had kept these records. Perhaps, for whatever reason, Morgan had threatened to use them to expose the money laundering operation. Just as Devereaux was looking into the case in 1990, Another very unusual killing took place in Arizona. A man named Doug Johnson was found shot to death in his car outside his office in the city of Phoenix. The killing seemed senseless. There was no obvious motive, yet it was clear that Johnson had been deliberately targeted. This was not an accidental shooting or a robbery. Nobody was ever apprehended for the crime. And where was Mr. Johnson's office? Why, it was directly across the street from Don Devereaux's. Moreover, Johnson and Devereaux drove almost identical cars. Understandably, the journalist believed that he had been the real target. Nor was he the last journalist who might have been the target of those who wanted to keep a lid on the illegal operations that Chuck Morgan had been engaged in. In 1991, Devereaux was contacted by a reporter from Washington, D.C., a man named 
Danny Casoaro, who was interested in the case. Devereaux agreed to share with him the information that he had uncovered about Morgan's money laundering. However, Mr. Casolaro died just before he received that information. He was found dead in a bathtub in a room of the Sheraton Hotel in the town of Martinsburg, West Virginia. His wrists had been slashed a dozen times. The medical examiner ruled his death a suicide. In one final twist in the saga, John Adamson was released from prison in 1996. He then moved into the Federal Witness Protection Program. He had already been placed under protection while in prison in 1990, after he agreed to give evidence against Max Dunlap. Adamson died in an undisclosed location in 2002, at the age of just 58. In an epilogue to this case, Neil Roberts, the Arizona attorney who gave evidence linking Adamson to the murder of Don Bowles, made a deathbed confession. Dying of a combination of chronic alcoholism and multiple sclerosis, Roberts admitted that he had played the leading role in orchestrating the assassination of Mr. Bowles. He said that his legal practice was faring badly, largely as a result of his cocaine habit, and that he had started working for the mob. Whether or not this confession was true, we cannot know for sure. But it provides just one more insight into the sad and sordid world that lay just beneath the ostensibly respectable surface of political and business life in that corner of the United States in the 1970s. Thank you for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is the last episode of this season. Patreon supporters can check out a video bonus Behind the Season, in which producer Lindsay Morse and I discuss the cases we've covered over the last few months, and more broadly consider the theme of conspiracies and the use of the term conspiracy theory to describe various analyses of historical events. That bonus comes out on Sunday, September 13th. I hope you'll join us for that. Videos are available to all Patreon supporters who pledge $2 or more per month. To become a supporter, just head on over to patreon.com slash assassinationspodcast. You can also help to support the show by leaving a rating or review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. And please do reach out to me anytime by email or via Twitter at AssassinsPod. Thank you so much for joining me for this investigation and for the conspiracies-themed season. I'll be taking a few weeks off to rest and research. We'll then be back with a new season in October. 
I'll be letting Patreon supporters know about that first. And then I'll release a trailer to keep you all posted. Until then, goodbye.